Paul makes the statement that we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son in light. And remember what we said? I said that. I've said this several times. This is a test. Repetition is a way to teach. So when we're in this kingdom of light, now that the sun has come here, the S-O-N has brought the S. Oh, stop that, Cliff. Here we go. The S-O-N, the S-U-N. What two things are we suggesting that we can see more clearly now? I failed. <laughs> we, said, we said because we're in this kingdom of light. This is why we're reviewing. <clears throat> because we're in the kingdom of light of his son, we can see two things or two. Huh? Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. <clears throat> thank you. Give you a gold star. Yeah. You get an extra donut. Yeah. We, we, we said that in this kingdom of light, we sug I suggested that what we can see is ourselves more clearly. Creating the image of God, loved by God, those matters there where we can actually see who we are, have an identity that is consistent with what the Scripture says. A lot of us go around thinking about ourselves in other ways, but the Scripture is very clear that we all have worth and value because we're created in the image of God. Our contributions may be different. Our skills and gifts and abilities may be different, but our value is a settled matter because we're created in the image of God. And we said we've seen ourselves more clearly. And then we said also in that we saw part of the problem that, that we have. And that's that sort of self-centered kind of living. So we see ourselves. And then second, Jerry was said, we say, what, what do we see? God more clearly. God more clearly. And we've been kind of working around the edges of that because of this statement here on your outline. And I think from William Temple uh, this incredible uh, quote, when I read this in seminary years ago, uh, it literally rattled me so hard, it put me on the path of really trying to decide, um, do I have an accurate view of God? Because if you have a false idea of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is for you. Uh, the worse it is, not, it doesn't get better, the worse it is. Be better for you to be an atheist, uh, William Temple, who was the great Archbishop of Canterbury. And so we've been kind of working around that notion that we see ourselves more clearly and we see God more clearly. Now, what we're proposing here then is a more biblically informed view of God, a more uh, biblically <clears throat> view of God. Some of you remember, I know we have uh, different folks coming in different weeks, that uh, several years ago that Baylor did the study on how Americans see God basically in four different ways, in four different ways. And we've been working through those <clears throat> to say what is the answer or the antidote uh, to some of these views of God. And some of the views of God that came out of the Baylor study uh, have a bit of truth to them. Uh, one of them is authoritative. God does have authority <clears throat> and he does have power. Uh, but when you take that to the extreme or that's the only understanding you have of him, it gets distorted. Uh, another one that they came out with was the benevolent God. Uh, caring and loving uh, in those kind of matters. And that's true. But one of the things that happens with that is that then God becomes permissive, that uh, kind of anything uh, you want to do. So, so we've been working through those. So uh, let's look here uh, at that. And I said, here are the ones we're proposing. God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. And the antidote there is to the distant God. That's the one Baylor identified, the distant God. Maybe the God of deism that, you know, kind of wound the clock up and walked away. And so we have this view of God that helps deal with that. Uh, the second one here we looked at is God is consistent with a God 
who has our best interest at heart. <clears throat> we work through that, discuss those matters. And that really is the antidote to what uh, Baylor identified as the authoritative God. Now, I said that because of this, that certainly God has authority, but if you simply obey God because he has authority, or do you obey him because he has your best interest at heart? That makes a difference, doesn't it? Does that, does that make a difference <clears throat> in how we operate? We don't say God doesn't have authority, but we ask the question, is he using that authority in my best interest or with respect to my concerns? And so I think that that's the antidote to that heavy-handed kind of notion uh, of God that some people have, that God is just the boss. Then the third one we've looked at is a God of holy love. And uh, that is a God who loves us, but we said holy love had a particular feature. Again, this is test time. Here we go. Anybody remember this? What is the distinguishing characteristic of holy love? It's what, it, oh, got your notes from last week. Yeah. yeah, it's a love that makes distinctions. Holy love is a love that makes distinctions. What's the distinction? What's good for you, God will sanction. And what's bad for you, God will oppose. Right? How many parents did that with their kids? <laughs> that you made a distinction when they said, I want ice cream for breakfast. And you said, well, I love you, so I guess I have to give it to you. Right? Yeah. The school teacher came that afternoon to talk to you, didn't they? <clears throat> what did you feed this kid this morning? M&Ms and ice cream, you know? Right. So, so, so holy love is a love that makes distinctions. And I think the antidote of this one is that it ad addresses the antidote of benevolent or permissive God. That God just, you know, basically uh, allows anything and wants you to be happy or whatever that means. And then this fourth one that we've been working on is this one here. It's on your outline. God is consistent with the revelation of Father. God is consistent <clears throat> with the revelation of Father. And we find that in uh, several passages. And the antidote there is the critical God. That's the fourth one that the Baylor study uh, identified. The critical God. The one's always uh, making critical statements about you like that. And we discussed last week some of this. And I would refer you to the recording on this. That, that really the idea of God as Father is a new idea in the New Testament. It's not very prominent at all in the Old Testament. You can scour the Old Testament and you'll have a hard time finding God being referred to as Father. And especially not being addressed as Father. Uh, Jeremias, an uh, uh, Old Testament scholar, has made this statement that there is no evidence at all that anyone addressed God as their Father. Never. And so this is a new idea. Uh, and we discussed at some length about this idea about that so, there is some evidence maybe uh, as we uh, work through life that there is a father wound in people where their relationship with their father was not healthy, was not good. And now there's this kind of father wound, and so we, we work through that. Now, we, we did a lot of things last week in terms of definition. What does the word father mean? Uh, those kind of matters. And then I said, I think this week what I'd like to do is to be able to go from definitions to demonstration. From a definition of God as father... To a demonstration. So I'm going to ask if you will to open your Bibles, go to your table of contents, or if you have your phone, or if you can, um, um, with your iPad or whatever, go to the Gospel of Luke. Very familiar story. You've all heard it, more than likely, but we're going to go through it. The Gospel of Luke 971 in my Bible, and we're going to go to chapter 15. Chapter 15. We're going to be looking at 
uh, this chapter and one of the stories uh, that is uh, listed here. Uh, So let's talk a little bit, I believe here on your uh, outline, here we'll go, uh, and we want to talk a little bit about context. Now notice here in chapter 15, verse 1, it starts like this. Now all the tax collectors, I wonder how many there were, you know, it says all of them. Uh, Yeah, more than one, but uh, yeah, but we'd wonder there. All the tax collectors and the sinners, that's interesting, were coming near him, this is Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable, saying. Now we're going to look at this here for the context, because I think that the context matters. What's going on here is that the the um, religious leaders are revulsed, or is that a word? Convulsed, revulsed. It is now. Yeah. It is now. You just heard it here. Tell I'll tell all your friends. There's this revulsion that they have that Jesus is actually engaging or experiencing this matter of allowing sinners to be around him. Now, this is going to say something here as we work through this because of the context of this, that this is what causes Jesus to tell these stories. There are three of them. We're only going to deal with one. But this context, if you will, and I'll just draw your attention to this. In the first story of the parable of the sheep, it's interesting that there's an increasing level of loss throughout this chapter. In the sheep, it's one out of a hundred. Now, all you math majors, what is that percentage? See, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I have trouble with math when I start multiplying letters. That's when I have trouble. But 1%. So in that first one, there's a 1%. Now, I just want to draw attention for, because of this uh, context here. Look at verse 4. What man among you? In other words, he's saying nobody would not do this. He said, look, what man among you, if he hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the 99 and go out to the pasture and find them? That's interesting. Jesus is saying, hey, look here now. There's nobody that wouldn't do this. What what man among you, if if you lost one, wouldn't do this? And so he he makes some intensity here to say, listen up on this. You you say these sinners and these tax gatherers are here and you're upset, but there isn't a man among you that if he lost one sheep, wouldn't go find it. Fascinating. Second, come down here, verse 8. Or what? Woman. Interesting, huh? Jesus has got a crowd here now. There are tax collectors and sinners and there are Pharisees and there are all kinds of people. And he says, there isn't a man among you here if you lost one sheep that you wouldn't go and try to find it. And there's not a single woman. Watch here. There's not a woman here if she had 10 silver coins and loses one coin, did not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Now, there's all kind of discussion about what this means. Is this a dowry part or there was uh, like a headband that some women wore that had 10 uh, coins in it? Whatever it is, it's valuable. And he says there's not a woman in the crowd. Isn't that interesting what Jesus does, how he does this, the context? He says, look, there's not a guy here and there's not a woman here that wouldn't go try to find or deal with what's lost. Now, what's the percentage here? There's one coin among 10, so that's 10%. It's, 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 it's uh, getting larger. So from 1% to 
And so here is uh, this matter of loss. And then he comes to verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. Um, some have uh, suggested on this that this is a, Jesus is really now going from 1%, 10% to what? Huh? Who's it, 50? Yeah. I think it's 100. I think both these boys are lost. One of them's lost outside the house, and one of them's lost in the house. Now, on, I think on the face value, it does. It looks like 50%. You know, this prodigal son, we, we see him. But there's enough evidence here, I think, to suggest that Jesus has taken this now from 1% to 10% to the reader to say 100%. A man had two sons. And so the context here. Now, other, a, a couple of other things of context as it relates to this. Uh, you'll notice here in verse 7, what is the response when what is found? joy or rejoicing it says uh, there's more he says you know i tell you the same there will be more joy in heaven well verse five it says the, the man comes back and he's rejoicing verse seven there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance now, watch this i think this is interesting i think again jesus is increasing the tension he's increasing the cost he's increasing the contrast he's about to pull out here so there's joy in heaven Right? Then that next one here. He says, uh, after this woman finds the coin, she rejoices. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy. Where? In verse 10. In the presence of the angels. Now, think with me here for just a second. Two possibilities. The possibility is here that that means there's joy in the presence. They're all ha hanging around together and they're, you know, in the angel coffee break room. And, uh, you know, however, I don't know how they, you know, they're all together. And in their presence, there's joy. But some others have suggested, who do the angels live in the presence of? God. Is Jesus saying here that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God, meaning who's rejoicing? God is. Now that would be clear because there's joy in heaven back in verse 7. It just says there's joy in heaven when one person repents. Again, I think Jesus may be increasing the tension, increasing the importance to say not only is there joy just in heaven, everybody, but there is joy in the presence of the angels to suggest the one that the angels live in the presence of is God himself. Just ask you to consider that. Joy, joy, joy. Now, in this parable, we're going to look at, in verses 11 to the end here, we're going to look at this uh, matter of the story. So I'll just start, you know what most of it. A man had two sons. The younger of him said to his father, give me. Now, in the New, I'm reading out the New American Standard, so if you're interested, you might want to underline it because I want to show you again a, a, an intensification I think that Jesus makes. He said, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, <clears throat> excuse me, the son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. 
Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him out into the fields to feed the swine. So this is pretty bad for a Jewish boy to be working with pigs. Just might want to note there on the side. Yeah, things are not working out that well so far. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods, or what we call the carob bean, uh, which was there. The swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, or some translators say came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men? Now notice, he hired himself out to a citizen. And then he comes to himself and says, how many of my father's hired men have more bread than enough, and I'm dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I am in, and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What did he say in verse 12 to his dad? Give me. Look at verse 19. What does he say now to his father? Make me. Make me. Okay, I went away because I said, give me my inheritance, and I've blown it, and now I'm coming back to you to say to you, now you make me. He's changed, hasn't he? He's turned. Make me, he says, as one of your hired men. You might want to underline that. We're going to look at that again. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said, You're right. You've done poorly. Is that, is that in there? there? <laughs> Just seeing if you're reading along here. Are you on Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm no longer worthy. And the father said, Quickly. Bring out the best robe and put on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. That's an interesting thought there about the place that death occupies in the biblical world. He didn't cease to exist. He was out of relationship and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And when he came and approached his house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring of these, this could be. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became what? Angry. Now this is really interesting because everything up to this point in heaven, with the sheep, has been rejoicing. And now there's a turn. No rejoicing here. No happiness here. No recovery here. Anger. That's all it is. And he was unwilling to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said, Father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me 
a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, when this son of your, doesn't even call him my brother, notice that. He didn't say my brother. He just says, this son of yours, right, has devoured your wealth and pr with prostitutes. We'll come back to this, but how does he know that? How does he know that? I got an idea here. We'll get to it. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that I have is yours. But he would not. But, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead. And he's begun to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And you know what? I, in working through this uh, this week and over some time, I thought it might be just valuable. to so just read it. The only problem we have probably is that there are some things here that the original reader understood that we probably don't. There, there are just a few things I would like to lift out, uh, if you will, here. And I want us to look here at this. I think I've got it right. The father loves the prodigal, the young son. I use the word license here because I want to draw a couple of uh, uh, ideas out of this. Um, and it's related to this. The younger son, permissive, his issue is guilt. His issue is guilt. In these two boys, I just want to suggest that there's two approaches, sometimes, if you will, <clears throat> to religion. That I think in Jesus' day, people understood it. There would be, in the younger son, perhaps, this, if you will, license or permissive is someone that might see the Christian life or living for God in some sense that I can do whatever I want to do because God will eventually forgive me. That's possible. Maybe he represents that. Uh, in some of my studies over the years, one of the things that I work with students is there seems to be uh, in, in my students and in people that there are two extremes that I think these boys may illustrate. One is what you might call license, like I can kind of do whatever I want to because God will always forgive me and he'll always be there. I understand some of that to be true, yeah. And the other one is the legalist, the one who has to earn their keep, the one who has to work their way into God's good graces. It's been interesting over the years, and I've, Marty and I have had this conversation a couple times, is that uh, in, our, in, the, in this class right here, my guess, because some of our ages uh, in there here, Many of us probably have been in the area of legalism, the older son. But I can tell you this, it's pretty much, I think, common uh, in uh, where I teach at school and when I deal with college students is they don't struggle with legalism very often. They struggle with license. We call that entitlement. We call that uh, some of those matters of I deserve it. And it seems to me that we're in a culture right now where we're trying to figure out how to navigate these two. We're trying to help people who are tied up in legalism and think they have to be good enough to earn it, uh, that they have to be uh, valuable enough to be able to be right with God. And that's the older brother. We're going to talk about him. But there's another group that's working this that maybe, and I'm not trying to put any, I'm not saying uh, it's everybody, but I'm suggesting that the, 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 the mainstream of this in culture now, mostly with people under 40, is license. And they deal with this matter of being permissive. 
And so I think these two boys sell it. There's a great book if you're interested. It's kind of theological, but um, I may have ex expressed this today, but there's a book called The Marrow Controversy. Not the bone marrow. The <laughs> when I read that first, I thought, what in the world? In 1712, February 26, 1712, um, some Scottish theologians got together because they said we need to discuss the marrow of the gospel. What is the essential matter of the gospel? And there's a book called The Marrow Controversy about what is it. And they were working at that the two extremes that we're constantly dealing with is legalism and license. And both of them are a misunderstanding of the gospel. Both of them. It's to misunderstand the gospel of grace that we either are in license where we feel like we can live and do anything we want to or we're in legalism where we think we have to earn our keep with God. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. So I want to look at this, if we will, in terms of this. The father loves the prodigal, the young son, and here's what we're going to look at is the father's actions. I want to just lift this out to you just because, again, it might be helpful because we're not first century readers Number, number one, the father's action is he responds, if you will, to the son's request. It's rather bizarre. Uh, some have suggested that what the son is saying to the father, it's not time for me to receive my inheritance yet. I wish you were dead, but since you're not, give me what's coming to me. It's a rather bizarre request. The first century hearers would have heard that like, how much of a punk? I, don't, I think that's a word in Hebrew now. There's a, there's a derivative of that in Hebrew. What a punk for him to say, look, I'm getting tired. You're living too long. I'd like what comes to me because I kind of got some plans right now. And I'd like what is coming. And what's bizarre about this is he gives it to him. Look here. He says, give to me. And he divided his wealth among them. Now, that them has got to refer to the father and the older son. The older son is going to get two times the inheritance. The younger son gets one. So here's a father that is still in the farming business or sheep or those kind of matters who still has a, has a if you will, an operation going, and his son says, I want my part and I want to leave. That's kind of bizarre. On the other hand, the father does it. I have in my notes here, I said it's a bizarre, but he respects him and lets him go and says, okay, that's what you want. We want to look at this father and his response. So he goes out and he spends everything he's got. You know the story. He goes into the fields. He goes into the fields. He hires himself out, verse 15. But when he comes to his senses, that's a great statement. You know, a lot of us have to hit what they call bottom, right? You know that? Sometimes you talk to people and you say, you know what? They haven't hit the bottom yet. They haven't come to the end of themselves. They haven't come to the end. And so he hires himself out. He spends all this money in riotous living. He squanders it. And he would love for somebody to have helped him, but nobody will. So look here in verse 17. And when he came to his senses, how does that happen? Hit bottom. I think sometimes the wrath of God, we've talked about this occasionally, is really God allowing us to experience the consequences of our action. Now, hopefully, in most cases, that wakes us up. That, 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 it isn't God's wrath like, you know, blowing your washing machine up, you know, <laughs> you know, or making your car not run. It's when God says, okay, go ahead. 
And when you experience that, then you become aware of the consequences of it. And now the consequences of it are what awaken us. But as I look at that, I think, what was his turning point? His turning point was he remembered his father. Look here. And he, and he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying. He remembers his father. And so he, 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 he comes to his senses, and so he says, I will get up and go to my father. Notice this. He got a great speech. You know the thing about it is? It's all true. <laughs> Notice what he says. I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, I've sinned against heaven and your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Now, this is an interesting word here. Uh, notice um, back here in 15, he says he hired himself out to a citizen. This is what he just basically has a job. He basically has a job. There's another term down here when the father uh, tells the servants to get him a robe and a ring. That's a different word. That's the word that is used for generally a servant, doulos is the Greek term, that lives on the property. Lives on the property. This son, in coming to himself, thinks the best he can hope for is this. He hopes that he can become a hired worker day laborer. This term, mystheo, is the Greek term found in Matthew when Jesus tells the parable about, he goes to the city square and says, let me hire you for today and I'll pay you a denarius. Remember Matthew 23, I'll, I'll pay you a denarius. Then he comes back and, and it's noon and he says, what are you guys doing hanging around here? And they say, well, nobody's hired. He said, well, go get in the field and I'll give you a denarius. And, and then it went all through the day. These are day laborers. I, I thought of this. This is what Jesus is talking about. People, no, people that are working a day at a time. They have no hope that they'll work every day. They have no confidence that they'll be brought in on any regular basis. This is the lowest level on the socioeconomic scale in Israel. He believes the only thing he can get is to become a day laborer. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, I uh, uh, applied for a job at United Parcel Service. I knew that company, and, and uh, I had worked for them before, and there was some conflict about, you know, were they going to rehire me or not? Uh, I had been such a delightful person before. <laughs> yeah, when you're, when you're moving freight and yelling and screaming at each other, you think, oh, they may not rehire me. Uh, anyway, I got, I, they, they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll rehire you, but uh, you don't have a job here. We'll wait and see. And so I had to go to work at 2.30 in the morning to uh, unload tractor trailers with boxes and all that kind of stuff. And I went at 2.30 in the morning and worked till about 6.30 or 7. And it was a great job. I mean, uh, in, in, I was thinking back the other day, in 1985, I was making ten fifty an hour. Yeah. Yeah, and full medical benefits and full dental benefits and full optometrical benefits. First pair of glasses I ever got part-time, all paid holidays, and three weeks and two days paid vacation. That was a good job. <laughs> well, there were 5,000 applications in front of me. <laughs> 
and it was a miraculous story how I got hired because there was a guy in the office that I called, talked to him, went to the hiring place, and the guy went to the church of the pastor that I knew in Kentucky. It's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> anyway, but I didn't get hired. I got taken on. And every morning, well, every night at 1130, I'd, get on, I'd go to bed at 9, get up at 1130, call and talk to Dr. Swanner and say, Dr. this is Cliff. Do you need me tonight? Because I'd have to go back to bed and then get up at 2.30 to go to work. And they would say sometimes, no, we don't have enough volume today. We don't need you. Those were terrible days trying to go to seminary and trying to get a job. And calling up every morning at, two, at 11.30, you know, kind of interrupt your sleep a little bit as well. And then I try to go back to sleep and think, am I ever going to go back to work? Are they ever going to need me? Are they ever going to need me? I mean, I remember those stressful, stressful days until finally they said, you know, you've worked here for a while. Uh, we think you can do the job. We're going to hire you now. Now I didn't have to call anymore. That, that's the idea. This son thinks that's the best he can get. This hired servant back in 13 or 15, the hired worker in 15 is higher feeding pigs than this. I mean, this is low. So whenever the actions of the father, when the son, notice here, he's, he, he has this, just make me a hired man. Now, the law taught I required them to pay them at the end of the day. That's the book of James, chapter 5. You go look at that. They, they've withheld their wages. Listen, these people are substance-level living. They made just enough to go buy food or to take care of some shelter and to be able to live. And that's all he expects. So he goes home. So when he got up, verse 20, while he was still a long way off. I wonder, you ever wonder, how did the father know this was him? Yeah, he's a long way off. Did the kid have a hitch in his get along or something? You know, <laughs> his son. Yeah, I, see, I've never had kids, uh, so I don't know. I, but I, I'm guessing parents somehow see. You know, they what? Yeah, there's a a gate the way they walk or a, a sense or a way they carry themselves. And look here, it just says when he was a long way off. The father saw him. This is an interesting word here because in the New Testament, there's only one other place. Based, well, it says Jesus felt compassion for the crowds because they didn't have a shepherd. But the word feeling or felt only shows up four or five times in the entire New Testament. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a very common word. But it says right here, he saw him and he felt compassion. He felt something. And then this is, a, this is a picture I've shown you before, and I have it. It's a part of my screensaver. Notice what it says. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he ran. This is one of my favorite pictures. Let that settle in your soul a little bit. See, that's a picture of God we all want, isn't it? We're guilty. We've been permissive. We've done what we knew we shouldn't have done. We, we, we know we failed. Some of us in our mind, I think we have the picture what we're coming back of God like this. Right? 
uh, Malcolm, a guy I used to follow, a guy named uh, Malcolm, uh, I remember his last name later, <laughs> but he wrote on this thing, and he's from England, and he said, it's a good thing that Jesus told this story, and it was part of the Jewish culture of love like that. He said, because if it would have been a British story, the father would have said, oh, so nice to see you. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true. I'm not, if you're British and you're back, I'm not, but, it, you know, but they are a little stiff upper lip, you know. Um, but I mean, this is, this is the demonstration that Jesus, he didn't want to just define terms for them. He says, this is what a father God the Father is like when he sees his boy coming home. I, I've meditated on this and just looked at the, the uh, expression in his face. The expression in his face. Now, this is crazy. The, the, the original audience would have been shocked by this. And you know some of this. We, it's been talked around about here. But I just want to remind you that in the ancient world, when a son lost inheritance or money among the Gentiles, which we call the distant country, that's what they think that suggestion means. When, when a son who would have been involved in losing inheritance to a Gentile, audio, or Gentile family, this would now be a matter that the father and the entire city would come around and shame him. It was an actual ceremony, Kazasa. They would break a large pot in front of him. They would also surround him. They'd break a large pot right in front of him. And they would say, you are cut off from this people forever. The community would completely reject him for several reasons. One, he had dishonored his parents, his father for sure. And he had lost his inheritance among the Gentiles. You know, today, I, we, we were in Israel a few years ago. I think I mentioned I've been there once or twice or three or 4,000. One of the things really interesting when you, when you go to Israel even this day, there is tremendous pressure on both Palestinian and on Jewish sides that you would never, as a Jew, sell your house to a Palestinian, ever. And if you're a Palestinian, you would never sell your house if you did, you'd get run out of town and the family that bought it. It's still a real intensity about property, about keeping it in the family, of not allowing Jewish property to go to Gentiles and even the Gentiles' Jewish property. This is a real thing. So is it fact here? Because the second thing here is you probably know this, but the father does what? He runs. Now, this just seems strange to me, but it's, again, <clears throat> the first century reader would have heard this and go, what? No man of dignity ever ran. Because in some sense, you had to hitch up your dress. <laughs> I always cracked me up when I was in church. They'd say, did y'all ever grow up in this church? Women should not wear clothes that look like a man. Ever heard that? And I said, you know, when that was written, they were wearing dresses, right? <laughs> Everybody. Just so we're straight. <clears throat> Just so we're clear, I, I, I got kicked out of some really good churches. <laughs> I really did. Because I would say something. The, you, he would, now, again, this is out of the law or midrash <clears throat> that they would have to pull their robe up and expose their leg. And that was considered dishonoring. No man 
would run. It showed no dignity. And the father runs. So he not only keeps away the shaming ceremony by going, he runs to this kid. He doesn't just, again, it, wouldn't it be remarkable if he just stood there and waited till his son got there and received him? That'd be remarkable enough right there. No, not this father. He runs to him. He goes to him and he begins the process of hugging him. This other picture I, I love. I like the way King James kind of translates this. The son starts this speech and the father never acknowledges it. I mean, look at her. Son said, Father, I'm no longer be your son, but the, fa but the father said to his slaves, bring the best robe. And it says here that he embraced him and kissed him. And the word embrace here in verse 20, it... It has the idea, I think, I think King James, what it means is to like fall on somebody. It's a Greek term, epi, and it means to fall on somebody. I mean, this, is, this isn't a, like a, hey, how, how are you, you know. This is, a, this is an embrace like falling. It says on, some say he fell on his neck. Think how this kid smells. <laughs> Love does crazy things, doesn't it? welcomes a kid back that blew all your money. Welcomes a kid back that looks like he's been in the pig pen because he has. Love, love welcomes someone back who doesn't deserve this kind of treatment. But he never says a word. And the father then says this, bring out the best robe. Whose robe is that? His. His. He's covering this boy. With his robe. You know, you can think of a lot of theological ideas where it says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. The best robe is the robe the father has. And this father envelops him to protect him, to enable him to continue to go on. He brings the best robe. He said, bring him shoes. Only wealthy people really wore shoes. In fact, slaves never wore shoes. Bring him the ring if you will, signifying now authority and position back in the family, and we're going to get the fatted calf. Now, I want to hurry on here. Oh, my goodness. Because there's something else here. <clears throat> the, the, the older brother hears about this, right? I want you to see this. <clears throat> the father loves the performer. The father loves the performer, the legalist, the older son. <clears throat> see, <clears throat> the... The younger son, he had to deal with guilt. The older son has to deal with his calculating attempt for gain. See, the legalist thinks if I do all the right things, then God will do this for me. If I, if I act right or I do the right thing, I can get God to do for me. That's the heart of legalism. It puts God into debt to us. It puts him into the, you hear people talk like this. Wait a minute. I went to church. I paid my tithe. Why did God let that happen? What? Whoa, whoa, what? You know what's happening? Because you're putting him into debt to you. You're thinking that this performance earns you something. Now, I do want to, we got to hurry here, but, but, but notice here, he's angry. Oh, one more thing. Let me, one more thing. I got to give you. The rabbis taught after this rejoicing like this, 
when it says there's all this joy, you know what the rabbis taught? You can find this in the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, page 652. The rabbi said there, there is joy before God when those who have provoked him perish from the earth. That's what the rabbis taught. There is joy in heaven with God when those who provoke him perish. This is, that's why the first century audience listens and go, this is crazy. This father's rejoicing. This father is loving. This father is running. This is not, I mean, this would have been like somebody telling you that George Washington, you know, uh, used a chainsaw to cut down a tree. <laughs> this would be so bizarre. You'd think it's crazy. You can't understand it. And so the older brother, he's a legalist. I want to draw your attention. You, you'll, you can go look at this later, but he said he was angry and not willing to go in, but his father did what? Went out. Notice this. The father didn't go after the younger son. He respected his decision. He honored his decision. He said, if you want to go, you can go. I'm not going to hold you here. But when the older son does what he does, the father goes out to him. Now, now I think Jesus is, is doing something here to even these religious bigots who are Pharisees and scribes and saying, I love you too. As misguided as you are and as messed up as you are, I love you too. You know, this is, this is the hard thing. That, that sometimes we think that the Pharisees, and they are tough people and they're bad. Jesus still loves them. And he goes out to him. And he says, he's pleading with him. Look at verse 28. He's pleading with his son. He loves the performer. He doesn't want him to have to perform. He doesn't want him to have to live like this. But he knows who he is. And he says, I love you. He doesn't want him living like this, but he loves him. The father goes out after him. He knows. And so look here. He said, I've, I've served you all these years and I've never neglected a single command of yours. This is the heart of legalism. I've done it all. I've done the right thing. And yet this boy is as lost as that prodigal son ever thought about. Because he's obeyed and lived, I think, out of a sense of gain. See, the, boy, the young boy has to deal with guilt. This man, this son, is doing all that he's doing for gain. And that's why it's been like chewing sawdust for him so long. There's no joy in it. There's no life in it. I've just obeyed you. I've never obe disobeyed a single command of yours. But when this son of yours comes into our... Now notice here, it says he's, he's, he's been in this country and he's spent all his wealth on prostitutes. How does he know that? Let me tell you, here's a human tendency, I think. I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, I was at a, at a convention and somebody was playing guitar on the stage and guitar players are different people, okay? I've been one, they're different. They always do something with their mouth when they're playing. Always. Just watch them. Watch them today. I'm serious. There's something about this. They got to. I don't know what it is. There's some genetic connection here. So, so this guy, a friend of mine was playing, and he was a really good guitar player, and he was, you know, all that. 
So we're after the service, and a friend of mine that I knew said to me, I didn't enjoy that service at all. And I said, why not? He said, that guitar player, he was showing off. And I said, how do you know they were showing off? I said, let me tell you something. There's a thing called projection. And what you should say, if you were up on the stage acting like that, you would be what? Showing off. Don't put that on him. Now, this is a life principle here, I'm telling you. When you say somebody else is doing something, you don't know their motive. You are probably projecting, saying, under the same circumstances, that's what I would be doing. Right? So be careful here. It's called projection. We project on others. We, we, we throw, because you know why? This kid, is, this brother is saying, if I would have gone, that's what I would have done. See, the legalist isn't usually really happy with obedience. They're just chewing and crawling through life thinking, well, at least I'll go to heaven. <laughs> but if they cut loose, they'd be just like the prodigal, the religious, rigid, hateful person. He's projecting. Or did he go and see his brother and do nothing about it? Who knows? Who knows? But the father says, look, I know you've been like that. And I'm, I'm still fat. And I'm not sure. I, I, you know, this was a first century story. He said, but this son of yours who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes and killed a fatted calf, you've killed the fatted calf. And the father said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. Hmm. Is Jesus trying to remind the religious legalists? You, you don't have to live like this. Hateful, rigid, obeying. What I have is yours. Jesus loved these people. Jesus loved the older brother. He thought, you're, you're just, you don't, I think it might be fair to say that the younger son did not understand the father. And the older son had never related to the father. Not as a father. He was, in fact, a slave, a servant. It's when this great grace, and I want to say this in, in closing. I think in my life, it's easy at times to be an older brother. And as I was reading this past weekend, and something that a person made this statement, it said, one of the ways sometimes you can tell if you're an older brother is when great grace is extended our performing heart is revealed. Say it again. When great grace is extended, when great grace, when forgiveness, when great grace is extended, does it make you happy or mad? It, it, it might be revealing at times when great grace is extended to other people that I'm revealing that I have the heart of a performer. I'm thinking that's not fair. Or they don't deserve that. Or they don't get that. This idea, the father's great love for his son reveals and exposes the heart of the performer. I want to ask you to consider this week as we kind of go through this in the week. Here's something, a, a matter here. What today, before you go to bed, take some time to reflect on which of these brothers you're most often like. When, when great grace is extended to people, is it bothersome to you? It has been to me before. I, I, I've thought, wow, 
They deserve that. Well, Cliff, you don't want what you deserve. What, what kind of heart do I have? Notice what the father says about him. Your brother was dead. Remember, in Scripture, death never means to cease to exist. In the book of Revelation, hell is called the second death. Why? It's separation from the Father forever. We don't know. What does he do with his money? We don't know. We just know he has obeyed and been strict and he's angry about it. Yeah. With what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the point is. So I want, I want you to ask which of these boys are you? Am I? Which of these boys? Is my heart open and, and, and rejoicing when great grace is extended to others? Or is my heart restrictive? And angry and upset when that happens. So I just want to suggest to you again that this father demonstrates countercultural, completely opposite kinds of ideas that the original hearers would have gone, wow. And maybe more than that. The, the religious would have been angry and the sinners would have been dancing. Let's decide where we're going to be in our heart this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this story often doesn't need a lot of explanation. On its face, it is so amazing. And yet, as we dig a little deeper into it, we, as we have said and others have said, we find ourselves and we find a father that is the controlling character in this story that makes all the difference in both boys' life. For those of us, and Lord, I've been one of the older brothers. Soften my heart. Cause me to, to be willing to rejoice and celebrate at great grace that is given. Help my heart to be healed by your grace. To not be so restrictive or to not have so many rules and regulations that I think people have to abide by. And then, Lord, there may be some of us in here who are like the younger son, we're, we've been so permissive, we're really struggling with guilt. It seems to be persistent. It, it won't go away. We, we, we can relive if we're not careful. We've, we've got that speech rehearsed in our head, and we've said it over and over again. The Father keeps ignoring it. We, we keep rehearsing this. Lord, would you help us to stop rehearsing it and be willing to hear the Father his love for us to give us the robe and the ring and the shoes. So there's probably several of us in any of those areas. And we need your help to be restored both in the house and outside the house. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.